morning. How's it going? Yeah? Good. You guys had your coffee yet? You're going to need it to listen to me, all right? Um, as Beth said, my, or Jenny said, my name is John, and I pastor a church called Kainos, and I have known Micah for a long time. I think maybe 25 years. Uh, he was the best man in my wedding. Um, I grew up predominantly without a father. His father loved me very well at a very critical time in my life, and so it's very rare that we get people like that in our life, uh, and when you have those people, you got to hold on to them, right? And so God's been great to give us a good friendship. Um, now, you should know from the very beginning, I'm a recovering Baptist, and the problem is they've only given me 25 minutes, right? So we got to jump in. Um, if you got a Bible, you can turn or scroll to Acts 2. Acts 2, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21. And I want to talk to us this morning from the subject, the power of God's presence. The power of God's presence. Luke writes this, when the day of Pentecost set a wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya uh, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that when we read your word, your word also reads us. God, that it's alive, that it is sharp, that it is active, that it is able to pierce through all the walls and barriers that we construct. And Lord, that you're able to speak to us in a way that no one else can. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would hide me behind your word and that your word would have its way. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? God, would you... Would you help us set aside distractions in our hearts and in our lives? Lord, would the seed of your word fall on good soil, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in order order to understand any good 
scripture, you have to understand the context, right? And so what I want us to do is I want us to think about our time this morning in three ways. I want us to think about the context of our passage, the content of our passage, and then maybe one or two things we consider. So we can consider. So that's the context, the content, and something to consider. Let's think about our context. Uh, Yesterday, I I was sitting at my house and I was thinking about Lord of the Rings. We have any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Oh, we got a few. There we go. All right, good. Uh, Sometimes I say that and people say no. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know if I like you. But but, but I was thinking about Lord of the Rings and I was thinking about the Fellowship of the Ring. And if you're familiar with that movie, there's this sort of pivotal scene in the movie where uh, all the leaders from Middle Earth are gathered together at this thing called the Council of Eldron. And there's this debate that's happening with these leaders about how in the world will evil be destroyed once and for all. And it's decided that the only way it can happen is if the ring is returned to its point of origin to this place called Mordor. And as these people are bucking up for who's going to be the leader, who's going to be the person who's going to, you know, make this thing happen, Goromir, uh, one of the men present, he, he says this, he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. And what happens after, if you've seen this, you know that the response to Goromir's words is that there's this realization that they do not possess, both individually or collectively, what it will take to undo the curse that's befallen them. Although it's unspoken, there is this sense that without a leader, all hope has been lost. There is this lingering question about whether or not they should all just go back to their own kingdoms, each to their own way. It is in that scene that this conflict breaks out and everyone starts talking about how they should be the one to do it. And then this hobbit, this tiniest creature, emerges as the leader that will take the ring back to Mordor And suddenly, the people who were once at at each other's throats, all of a sudden, they rally behind this little hobbit, this ragtag group of people, made up of people who who would ordinarily not live with each other, uh, would never speak to each other, hated each other, would not spend time with each other, except for this calling that they've all been suddenly swept up into. And the more I think about that scene in the movie, the more I realize that that is actually what's happening here for us in this text. Although it's not apples to apples, there is this sense in which it is a fitting picture for us at this juncture in our redemptive journey. You see, the context of our story leaves us asking the same question, sitting in the same position. Jesus is gone. What will happen now? We are just this ragtag group of women and men, 120 in total. How will we build God's kingdom? We don't have the wisdom or the ingenuity or the power to continue the mission. A mission that began in Genesis 3.15 when God promised Adam and Eve that a serpent would be crushed by the head of the Messiah. A, A mission that can be traced to Genesis 12 where on the heels of Babel, where the nations were scattered and their languages were confused, God meets with Abram and he makes a promise that one day I'll make you the father of many nations. And then 28 generations elapse where God sends prophets and priests and kings to teach his people, to correct his people, to exhort his people, and then God goes silent 
for some 400 years. A woman born under the law to redeem those who were born under the law that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Jesus defeated sin. He defeated Satan and the grave. And then after appearing to his disciples and reminding them of their mission, he commanded them to go wait for the helper. Go wait for the spirit. And then he ascended to the right hand of the father. And now we find our disciples sitting, waiting, wondering, in the upper room praying, not knowing how God would fulfill his word. And we come to our text then where it says in verse 1 that on the day of Pentecost, they were all gathered together in that place. What were they doing? They were praying. They were waiting. They were obeying what Jesus had told them to do. And despite the reality that they didn't know what to believe, they knew him in whom they had believed. And that was enough to push them to pray. And what's interesting about that to me is that a question sort of pops off the pages when I read that. And the question is, will we worship God even when we can't see the hand of God moving in our lives? See, you and I want evidence. We are fact-based people. We want proof and we want constant reminders. And sometimes God steps back and he goes silent. And it's in those moments, it's in those places of silence where our character is tested, where our faith is tested. When God is not readily available to do your becking and your calling, what will you do? Jesus is alive. He is risen indeed, as we say, but he's physically gone. Things have changed for them. There is a vacuum. There is a void in their experience. And while we don't want to prop these people up, the reality is, is that they kept moving. And it, while they were doing that, verse 2, suddenly a sound came from heaven. One Luke describes as a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house. And as if that wasn't wild enough, it appears that there's these tongues of fire that hovered over them, and each one started speaking in a different language that they did not know. Verses 4 and 5 are interesting because it was at Pentecost that all these people had come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And their dwelling in Jerusalem were devout men and women from every nation under heaven, God-fearing people who were devout worshipers of Yahweh, temple goers and scripture readers. They were not casual participants. They were not culturally Christian. A careful reader would immediately think back to the Tower of Babel where the people were united around themselves and their own glory and they were trying to build a, a, a tower that would get them up to heaven. It was there that Yahweh came down and confused their languages and scattered them, but now here God is doing a new thing. With the finished work of Jesus in mind and the sending of the Spirit, God reverses what once was. John Stott says that nothing could have demonstrated more clearly this the fact that there is this multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the kingdom that is found in Christ. And ever since the early church fathers have seen this as the blessing of Pentecost, a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse at Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ prefiguring for us the great day when the redeemed company would be drawn from every nation, every tribe, and every people. As Philip Yancey says, the storyline of the Bible is that God gets his family back. Verse 6, they were bewildered and amazed. They were astonished. They couldn't reconcile what was happening before their eyes. And Luke is careful to tell us that those speaking in tongues were Galileans. 
Why does he do that? Well, it's because the Galileans were looked at as rural, sort of uneducated people, people with little capacity for learning. And yet here they were speaking languages they did not know. And what were they doing? They were testifying to the works of God. You see, Luke is a doctor, and in verses 9 through 13, he is very careful for us to detail a bunch of stuff. So he starts to outline for us, in case there's any doubt or confusion, exactly where these people have come from. He gives us 15 different nations, ethnicities, or languages. And he tells us exactly what these people were hearing in their own language. They were hearing the mighty works of God. Take note, beloved, that what Jesus said in John 14 is happening before their eyes, that the helper has come, and he is guiding them in all truth. He is testifying about the works of God. And the text says they were all perplexed, and they were amazed, and they were trying to understand what does this mean. And here we get a valuable insight into the human condition, because you see, you can be amazed by the works of God even things happening right in front of you and still not believe. Notice that our text doesn't say that they heard them speaking about the mighty works of God and all of a sudden they repented and they believed and they were fought. That's not happened yet. It just says that they were amazed. They were perplexed. They were astonished. Because some of them, very interesting guy at this point in his spiritual journey, he stands up and he's like, yo, nobody's drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's the hour of prayer. Now, the Jews fasted during this time, usually until the fourth hour of the day. And so there's no, there's no uh, likelihood that they're drunk. Instead, Peter says, don't you remember what Joel said long ago? You are devout worshipers. You are temple goers. You are devout men and women who know the scriptures. Do you not remember what Joel told us? Do you not remember that one day... God will pour out his spirit on all people. And the language that's used here is sort of this idea of a torrential downpour. It is a tropical storm that doesn't just blow through the area like a tornado, but it hovers and sits over a a particular landmass, and it just rains and rains and rains. That's the picture we get uh, in the language of talking about how he's going to pour out his spirit. He says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all people. There will be signs and wonders and prophecies Peter's point is that what Joel declared long ago has happened. The Messiah has come, and the last days are upon us. And the coming of the Spirit proves Jesus' work. Because all those who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You see, the reality is that those who were gathered in Jerusalem that day misunderstood what God was doing in their midst. They misinterpreted the power of God as the drunkenness of men. Just like with the Messiah, they had constructed for themselves a theology that was rooted in how they thought God should move. And here, in the presence of the Spirit moving, they were unable to see clearly because they were still looking for a God who would relieve their circumstances instead of offering them salvation. It's in the wake of that reality. We sitting here in this place this morning are confronted with the counterintuitive nature of God's wisdom. We often want God to do one thing when God is doing something altogether different. And this text illustrates for us two truths that are very, very important. There is the power that we think we need, and then there's the power that we have. There is the power that we think we need, 
and there's the power that we have. You see, if you and I were writing the story, we wouldn't write it this way. We would not write a story where a savior shows up as a baby. We would not write a story where the disavowed followers were holed up in a room waiting for someone they could not see, could not understand, or name. If you and I were writing a story, it would be much more like the Infinity Wars. Thing just is made right. You see, the power we think we need is something or someone that is simply a bigger and faster or stronger version of ourselves. Something that is just an extension of our plans and our dreams and our visions. We think we need something or someone who is created in our likeness and in our image. You'll recall the Pharisees. The power they wanted was not even close to the power they needed. The Pharisees only wanted to preserve their position and their way of doing things. They wanted an ethnocentric theocratic ruler who would believe their theology and abide by their rules and who would deliver them from their political oppressors. And we are no different. We want the power to fix our circumstances, to reach our potential, and to live our best life. We think we need the power to simply do what we can do, only better. We want super saiyan strength to overcome our addictions and our hangups and our problems and our hardships and our enemies. We think that this is what the Spirit of God is here to do for us, is to bless our ambitions and our desires to accumulate and accomplish and achieve. There's the power we think we need to be a bigger and better, faster, more intelligent. See, we think we know what kind of power we need. We think that power is about our strength all the while not realizing that the power we have available to us is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think. Because of his rich mercy, Jesus came first not to liberate us from our situations, but instead to deliver us from our alienation from God. And here we see a very interesting thing about God, that God's rescue mission, his mission, it it begins with empathy toward our brokenness. He is called Emmanuel, God with us. God with you, God with me, able to identify with us in all of our experience, subjected to all of our pain, all of our problems, all of our loss and our grief and our anger, all of our temptations, and yet unlike us, he lived without sin. You see, God does not give us a helper created after our likeness and our image. Instead, he gives us a helper who comes in and rearranges the furniture. We all have that family member. For me, it's my mother-in-law. Is this being recorded? Okay. Don't post this on social media. Uh, It's my mother-in-law, who last year we went on a trip. My wife and I, we came back, and everything was different. There were coffee mugs hanging from the wall. There was stuff everywhere. The furniture was in different places. And my wife came in and immediately inside just had this internal, like, meltdown, right? She's, like, flipping out, like, it's not supposed to be this way, you know? But my mother-in-law... God love her, is a very organized woman who thinks very efficiently, and she made my house efficient, you know, and we didn't like it. That's what the Spirit of God does in our life, though, isn't it? You see, if the power of God is present in your life, he starts rearranging the furniture. He doesn't just wait on the doorstep. He walks in, and he goes straight to your fridge. He starts grabbing stuff out. He starts tossing the salad dressing you should have tossed a long time ago. That's what the Spirit of God does. God gives us himself. 
He gives us his spirit to guide us in all truth, to empower us to live righteous and holy and blameless lives. He gives us his wisdom and his word. He sent his spirit to help us understand his word because the spirit came to glorify Jesus, not us. You see, in your own strength, you can do some good things. You can achieve a lot of goals. You can accumulate a lot of stuff. You might even change a few things about yourself, but you can't change the things that are beneath the surface. You can't change your heart. You can't change your motives. You can do some good things in the world, but you can't change it. But in the spirit strength, you can do all things because your strength is rooted not in your power and in your inadequacies, but in his. You can have faith in the face of uncertainty. You can have hope in the midst of hardship. You can have joy in the midst of suffering. You can have life even in the face of death. In the Spirit's power, you can overcome extraordinary odds and rejoice through unspeakable hardships. And you see, you may be listening to this and you might be thinking to yourself, well, why does this matter? It matters because this is not Lord of the Rings. This is not the Infinity Wars. This is the human story that we find ourselves in. It's not a fantasy or a fairy tale because you, as a believer, if you're sitting here, you know deep down and there, that there are parts of your heart, maybe even most poignantly in the last couple of years, that just longs to hear God speak, that just wants to be reminded of his presence, to be filled with inexpressible joy, to be comforted in your weakness, to be strengthened so that you can move forward, to see justice and goodness and mercy and righteousness fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. You know of your desperate to give you courage, to give you hope. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you too have the same longings. To be embraced in your loneliness, to be seen when you feel invisible, to be heard when you feel silenced, to be celebrated and loved when you feel forgotten, to see suffering alleviated and to find rest for your soul. You too find yourself daydreaming and longing for a day when things won't be this hard. If you're honest, you know that you don't have the power to change yourself, much less the world, because you too are longing for the Spirit of God to move. You see, brothers and sisters, one of the things that we can learn from this text that's indicative of where we are as human beings is that we have become hooked on the wrong thing. We want God's provision more than we want his presence. And it's because we're gifted and God's blessed the work of our hands and he's given us some gifts and a good portfolio and a good family lineage and he's done some good things for us. We mistake the blessing as proof of his presence with us. And we forget that righteousness, right, is something that must be sought after again and again and again. We forget that God reigns on the just and the unjust, that his grace is not just particular with blessing. We have become hooked on the wrong thing. We want provision. To have the spirit of God dwell with us is his greatest provision for us because God himself is the greatest gift. You'll notice that in our text, they did not receive the gift of speaking another lone language as proof that that was the power. The power they received is God himself. Speaking in another tongue was just the sign that God's presence had come. Notice that the promise Jesus fulfills is not that they get more stuff. They don't get greater capacity and they don't get greater productivity. They don't get um, uh, uh, more visibility. The fulfillment of the promise is that they become a new temple. You see, what's happening at Pentecost is that the people of God are becoming the temple of God. They're becoming a new temple where 
where the spirit and presence of God no longer dwells in buildings made by human hands, but it dwells in people, new creations that were stitched together by the hands of God himself. Notice that what's happening when Jesus fulfills the promise is that they're not just a bunch of individual new temples in a room, but they are a collective temple being ushered into a new community called the church, a community where the curse of Babel is reversed, where the nations are gathered, where the poor are welcomed, where the marginalized are lifted up. And with this new identity and this new community comes a new calling, a calling to carry the mission forward. In a knowledge economy and in a society that values graduate degrees and advanced education, specializations and certifications, we have to be careful. The mission being carried forward is not just for paid priests and pastors and professionals. The mission being carried forward is for all who call on the name of Jesus. That's you and that's me. Now, I'm at 24 minutes and 49 seconds. All right. In light of this, though, could you imagine with me what it would look like if we lived like we believed this? Because I see your heads north and south, amening, and that's good. I appreciate that. If you talk to me, I get done quicker, by the way. should have told you that at the beginning. But could you imagine with me for just a moment what it would look like if we lived like we believed this? What would it look like if we lived like we believed that we were the dwelling place of the Spirit of God? that we didn't just read texts about being ambassadors. We didn't just read texts about uh, uh, being disciples and followers, but if we actually saw ourselves as the ones through whom the Spirit of God was being moved forward in the earth. What would it look like if we saw ourselves as the hands and the feet of Jesus? I know I'm not your pastor, but can I just love you for a moment real quick? Your identity is not what God allows you to do to earn money. Your identity is not in being a mother or a father or a husband or an executive or whatever fancy title or initials you have after your name. That is not your identity. Your identity is that you are a child of the Most High God, which is why John says in 1 John 3, look what kind of love we've received that we've become called the children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And as God's children, we've been called to live like it, to be free. Galatians 5, Paul tells us that it's for freedom that we've been set free. So why do we keep going back to the yoke of bondage, trying to prove our worth and running on a treadmill when God has offered us an empowered life through the Spirit, one where we can be his hands and feet in the world, where we get to carry the mission forward? Brothers and sisters, we know this, but I need to remind you that this, this, this place is not our home. This is temporary. Your citizenship is in a new kingdom, one that's coming and will come in its fullness. And so may God make us a people who live and breathe with this kind of hope, empowered with this kind of spirit. Not one in our own likeness and in our own image, but as one that is able to help us in our deepest time of need. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. And God, we thank you for your word because your word, um, your word is able to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, um, that you would fill us this morning. 
Lord, on this day of Pentecost, as we gather together as a body, as we gather around your table, as we gather to worship, Father, would you remind us of whose we are, that we are your children, Lord, before we are anything else. God, would you free us up to live like that? I pray that your spirit would empower us, Lord, to pursue righteousness and holiness, faithfulness and goodness, Lord, that the fruit of your spirit would be born deeply in our lives. God, would you help us? We need you. Lord Jesus, we are desperate for you. Would you give us faith to believe? Would you encourage us? Would you empower us as we leave? I ask this in your name. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.